0: A very brief update on uh, the goings-on regarding the letter we sent a few weeks ago. Um, there have been a couple other letters to the editor published by the Herald since we wrote our letter, one in opposition to us and one siding with us. The one siding with us is Father Jeff Reed, um, who was in Celestine at the parish there, but is now at Holy Family as of... Thursday this week. A whole bunch of priests got moved this week, uh, so every parish in our county has a new priest as of Thursday, I think. Um, the uh, So I called Father Reed on Friday and told him, thank you for writing the letter. And uh, the fallout from it for us as a church body that you may not be aware of um And for the other church, True Vine Baptist and Pastor LaGrange, um, there was a group of people who organized to do things uh, online, on the Internet. And even though I'm young, the Internet is far beyond my scope of understanding these days. And so within about a day, they were able to take down the website for True Vine Baptist and put up a false one in its place. Um, That, we think, has been rectified as of a couple of days ago. Uh, on our side of things, um, the worst thing that happened was they were somehow able to spam Google enough that we were removed as a location on Google Maps. So some of you don't understand what I mean. If A lot of people have smartphones, right, and they would hit the maps to get directions to somewhere. And so let's say you were looking for First Presbyterian Church, you wanted to visit us. If you typed in First Presbyterian Church, there was none. We were gone off the internet, so to speak. Um, I talked to people who deal with this stuff regularly on Wednesday, I think. And they said it would be six months to a year before that would get remedied. Um, And then somehow God, in his kindness, on Friday morning, not only put us back on the map, but Google also removed the 30 or so one-star reviews of our church from people angry about the letter. So we are free of bad reviews, back on Google, and it is clearly God who did it because everyone who I talk to that knows about these things said, good luck, it ain't going to happen. So I'm very glad that that is the case. God be praised that we are not erased from the world. Um, And more than that, continue to pray that fruit would come from the letter, um, that people would repent of their sins, that the city would not host these events, um, but more than that, that people would repent of their sins and be saved. Uh, We desire the kingdom to grow. We desire men to leave their sins, and we desire God to get glory in that. Um, So that's the update. Uh, Hopefully that will be about the last time we talk about it, but I wanted to at least let you know God has answered prayers in relation to it uh, just this week. So with that, we're in Ephesians this morning, uh, chapter 2, and I will read for us from God's word. This is Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, or 1 through 10, sorry. This is God's word and it is eternally true. And you were dead not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask God for his help this morning. Father, we are very grateful for your word. We are grateful for the love that you have for us, and we pray that the Spirit would help us to delight in it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So if you remember chapter 1 of Ephesians, it was a lot of um, repeating the idea that God predestined us according to the purpose of his will. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons according to the purpose of his will. He gave the Spirit as our guarantee according to the great purpose of his will. uh, That all of these things are so that he would be praised and that his plan would be fulfilled. And then at the beginning of chapter 2... Uh, the Apostle Paul continues on this same line and talks about the fact that this was in the middle. He predestined us for adoption of sons to, in love while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That this was not a result of him looking down the pipe and saying, oh, you know, that guy the guy's making some decent decisions. I'm going to help him out a little bit. No, God in love, before the foundation of the world, chose some to be saved out of sin. And if we are Christians, we are among those who were once dead, and but now who are made alive. And so now we have to consider why God would do anything like this. Um, and it is because God is great in love. And no other reason. The... Questions abound as to why God saves some and not others. And that is a secret that is known only to God. We don't know why he saves or why he doesn't. Um, It belongs to him. I'm sure he has his reasons, but he has not told us any piece of what they are. Instead, what he has done is he has assured us over and over and over and over and over in Scripture, that those who are saved are saved because God loved them. That's the only reason. You can go all the way back. This is from Deuteronomy. Uh, the Israelites getting ready to enter into the promised land have been wandering for 40 years. And Moses says to the people, it was not because you are more in number than any other people that God set his love on you and chose you. And so he gives the idea that it wasn't because you were a big people that God loved you. But implied in the sermon of Deuteronomy is, God did not choose you because you were good. You grumbled the whole time. You mumbled against God from the very beginning, right at the start. As soon as Moses appeared, you were mad about the way God saved you. That's what Moses says throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Moses came, you got mad. Then you were saved, and you were still mad. And you grumbled in the desert, and you moaned, and you whined. God didn't save you because you were a big people. He did not save you because you were great and mighty. He did not save you because you were good. But he says this. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath. That he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand from the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord loves you, Israel, because he loves you. Not because of you, but because of him. He made an oath because he loved Abraham and he would love his descendants, and you are his descendants, therefore he loves you because he is a God that keeps his promises. And he promised to love. And it's the same exact promise. That Paul here is opening up for us. The Jews were the promised people of God. And God loved them. Not because they were more moral than the surrounding nations. Last week I preached a sermon on Manasseh, the king of Judah, who was more wicked than all others, who sacrificed his own son on the altar of Molech, and who encouraged the people to Continually cast their children before the god Molech in the valley of Hinnom in Topheth. And they did. It says he filled the land with innocent blood. Child sacrifice was rampant in Israel. And it was condemned. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel both condemn it and say, When you began sacrificing your own children in the valley of Topheth in the valley of Hinnom, it was a thing abominable to God and had not even entered his mind. It was so wicked. So the people of Israel, the chosen people, were not better than the others surrounding nations. They did not have a moral virtue that somehow set them apart as God's people. What set them apart as God's people is God saying, you're my people, I love you, follow me, come after me, walk with me. That's it. That's the only reason. And then the people of Israel for hundreds of years had spurned the love of God uh, as the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And then finally, because of the detestable acts that they had done, God cast them into Babylon in exile for 70 years and then brought them out and for several hundred more years after the temple and the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, they continued to sputter along, mostly faithless until Christ came 400 years after the last prophet of the Old Testament and then what happened when Jesus came on the scene did the people of Israel all of a sudden repent no they did not in fact they very much hated the son of God Um, and so then God in his kindness has this eternal plan that he had been setting in motion since Adam all the way up through when his son came And it was this, when the people of Israel, the Jews, rejected him, the Gentiles came in. And the walls and the barriers of hostility and awfulness were torn down in Christ Jesus so that all people everywhere could hear the gospel, repent and believe in a way that had been closed off due to many reasons in the Old Testament. It's not that Gentiles could not be saved in the Old Testament. It was just not the main thing going on. God was showing his love to the Jews specifically throughout history. And then the Jews had spurned him and he he opened wide the heavenly gates. And this led to a lot of problems in the early church and it still leads to a lot of problems in our day. Um, This wall of hostility being built up and so, Paul, in order to knock this wall of hostility down, this idea that we are somehow, some way, a better people if we are Christian than those people who are not. We are somehow, some way, superior because we are in the church and those who are outside the church are inferior. And Paul, through the Spirit, absolutely demolishes that argument. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins in the way we once walked. We had no rights to the kingdom of God. We were not better than the guy next to us. We didn't make a better choice. We didn't have more knowledge. This is... This is how R.T. Lange puts it when he's talking about this. This idea that we, we somehow have reasoned our way into heaven, I think, is a lot of things times the way we think about it. We figured out what that other guy hasn't figured out yet. We understood, because of our vast knowledge and our reason and our logic, that Christ died for us. And they just need to use their reason and their logic and their education to figure it out, too. That if we just educate the world, the world will become saved. If we just teach the world, they'll become Christians. And so R.T. Lange says this, Reason, logic, is a glorious gift of God. As the deprival of the same, madness is a great misery and judgment. So to, to have your right mind and be able to think and figure things out is a great, great gift. And we know that because we can look at the opposite, those who don't have it, and see the depravity. But it is much weakened, logic, reason, is much weakened and darkened through the fall, and hence inclined to many errors and prejudice, permitting itself to be abused. Living men cannot exactly understand that they are to regard themselves as dead through trespasses and sins. Weak, they prefer admitting, as applicable to them. And indeed, the Word of God does occasionally describe us as weak, as sick. But the Spirit of God does not mean this as men gladly explain it. I'm going to walk through this in a minute. They confess themselves weak with the persuasion that they can make themselves better and become strong by self-improvement. The Word of God, however, means a weakness in which self-help is no longer possible, where the hope of recovery rests solely on the presence and power of the physician. As certainly as the body without the soul is dead, so certainly is the soul without the spirit dead. We have a great problem that happens as we become Christians in our thinking and in our actions. Is we tend to remove the spirit from our thoughts of how we became what we are. We tend to think we did this. We figured out how to live a good life. We figured out how to walk the right way. We were the ones who figured out how to believe. We're the ones who figured out how to act rightly. And so Paul says, no, no, no. You were chosen before the foundation of the world so that God's perfect plan could be fulfilled in Christ Jesus to the praise of His glorious grace. You were dead. You were dead. But God, in His great love, made you alive. Not because of you. You had nothing to do with it. You were, in fact, a great hindrance to the problem at hand. You adamantly did not want to be saved. Romans 5 says that. God shows his great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We did not want the gospel. And then God opened our eyes to the gospel. And that is the only difference between us and a non-Christian is God's love particularly. On, at that moment, on that day, and continuing forward the rest of our lives, the love of God is the only conceivable, visible difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Without the love of God, we would not be Christians. Period. In And this love... Becomes more glorious the more we think about this fact that we are not lovable people. God didn't say, Oh boy, that's an easy love right there. I'll take that one. And that one looks pretty good. I'll take that one. Oh, we're all the worst kind of prickly pear. We were none of us pleasant to the touch. We did not have redeeming facets of our bodies or minds. We were corrupt in every part. And then God, because He loved us, picked us up. While we kicked against Him and caused Him bloody wounds on the cross, He loved us. And this, we know, is the most difficult sort of love. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's think about this a little deeper. What God's love actually means. Think of the worst enemy you have. Whoever that is. I don't know all of your stories. The person who hates you the most, would do anything to undermine you, despises you, your Christian faith, that you maybe haven't talked to in 20 years because of it, think of that person. Think of how much they despise you. Think of how much they would be glad to see you in pain. Now, die for them. Not after they've apologized to die for them. Die for them while they're spitting in your face, wishing you dead. Give your life for them. Some of us are inclined because we are boastful to say, I would do that. I would die for them. You would not. Imagine going up to the person who is adamantly opposed to you, hates you at the very core of their being, would rather be dead than be near you, and would be glad to die in your presence. And you die for them. This is the sort of love God has for us. We did not come into the kingdom with arms wide open, until God loved us and made us Christian, made us born again, breathed His Spirit into us so that we could delight in His ways. Until that very moment of new birth, we were kicking, screaming, fighting, hating, spitting at God. That's who He died for. That's His love. It's not little bitty sort of, kind of, a guy who maybe doesn't like you very much. In the last few weeks, I've made some people in our town upset. And by virtue of me making them upset, you have made them upset, because we are one church. Most of them, though, I would probably still die for, because they haven't done anything explicitly mean to me. Nobody's pulled a knife on me. Nobody's come after me in the night. Have you ever been at the end of something like that? Have you ever known a person who would just hates you? It's maybe a little more easy to think about it in the abstract. Because very few of us, even our worst enemies, are not like the person I'm describing. Very few of us have somebody who hates us that much. So let's take it abstract for a minute to help us get our minds around the love that God has for us. We are all very familiar with Adolf Hitler. We are are aware of his plans and his ambition to rule the world. We are aware of the way in which he went about it, which was to murder all of his enemies. The famous Crystal Knight where he Sent a bunch of his SS officers out and slaughtered all of his political opponents so they could take charge. Then the awful, wicked things he did on his own people, slaughtering them, killing all the children who had any sort of disability in wheelchairs, Down syndrome, putting them in the slaughterhouse, and then the Jews, and then black people, and then whoever else he deemed to be not fit for his kingdom. Imagine dying so that Hitler might live. It's unfathomable. We couldn't... Even me saying it sounds sacrilegious. It sounds actually anti-God to say something like that. Die so that Hitler might live. It's because we have very little understanding of our actual nature our actual hatred, our actual sin, self, outside of Christ. We tend to think of ourselves as a little old lady who shakes her fists at the cars as they drive by in her car. Like that's as mean as we think we were. That's like that's the limit of our actual agitation towards God. Is you know the innocuous woman who's mad that the car passed her. My grandma did this. There's a famous story that my sister tells. I'm going to shake my fist at him, Carl. And my grandma was like the sweetest old lady. Like, no one was offended, grandma, that you shook your fist at them. Um, That's what we think of ourselves outside of Christ. Just like this sweet little person who barely did anything wrong. And the reality is that we were absolutely depraved, haters of God, insolent, enemies of God. And He, at that moment, while we were still sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, because of the great love that He had for us, before the foundation of the world, that we should be called sons and daughters of God, He died for us right there. And then His death, by virtue of the Spirit, changed us into lovable things we were unlovable he loved us anyway and made us lovable but when he saved us we were not lovable everything good that has come after everything good that you have done as a Christian every nice thing is dependent on the first act of God's love for you but God because of his great love died but god this is the beginning and the end of the christian life so what do we do with it then The first thing we do is actually be delighted by it by actually acknowledging all the truth of it that we're not good we had no rights to the kingdom so that makes us actually humble rather than boastful right so right here in this by grace you have been saved so that no one may boast it keeps us from boasting to know this truth it keeps us humble Keeps us from saying, you know, it's not that hard. Just believe. Which is what we want to do, which is what we often think, and then sometimes we often say, it's not that hard, just believe it. The second thing it does for us in those sorts of engagements is it allows us to come out of the argument itself. This is something that I've known for years, and I'm just now really starting to actually put into practice. People who are not Christians will say things like this to you. They said this about the letter we wrote. I don't believe in your God and I don't believe your Bible. Therefore, don't talk to me about it. In any number of vile words in between. I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in your Bible. Don't tell me about your God and your Bible. Of course they don't believe in our God if they did they would be christians <laughs> of course they don't believe the bible if they did they would be christians and it's, it sounds so obvious when i say it like this but oftentimes what we do when someone says to us something like this in an argument don't i don't want I don't to hear it i don't want to hear what i don't it doesn't matter to me what your bible says that is the whole point You don't believe it, therefore I'm going to tell you what it says. Because that is how God actually saves people. Through His Word. So this is Romans chapter 10. Dig this into your brain. You may have it already. This is Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. How then... Well, I'm going to start in verse 13. 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You think, okay, I just got to logic them in, and I just got to reason with them until they call on the name of the Lord, and then we're good. But the Spirit does not leave it there. He says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and how will they call on the name of the Lord? No, that's not what he says. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They have to believe before they call. Faith comes before action. New birth has to happen or they will not believe. Okay? How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent... As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Of course, when you quote scripture to someone, they will respond with, I don't believe that. That's the point. You don't believe it. And the way for you to believe it? is for you to hear it and God to open your eyes to it in a moment because of His great love. This is, then, our duty as Christians. When we talk about not being ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation, we don't mean a generic truth. We mean the specific words of Scripture. This is the power of God unto salvation. This is... We are to be humble with people because we too were children of wrath and did not understand, believe, or acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. And we are to absolutely use the one means by which people are saved. God's word. And they will say to you, I don't believe God's word. And you will say, you should believe God's word. And they say, I hate your God. You shouldn't hate my God. You should believe his word. And they will say, well, I don't care. Why do you keep quoting scripture? This is, This is all the time, my my friends. Stop quoting scripture. And you know what I do now? I just quote another scripture. There's no other means by which people are saved. You cannot reason a person into heaven. You cannot logic a person into heaven. You cannot argue a person into heaven. They must be born again. And that is all God. That is all God in His great love. It's nothing, nothing else than His great love. The end here. This is, again, going back to who we were outside of Christ. This is uh, Charles Spurgeon. And this is for our comfort. Okay? So that was, there's two things applied, right? Humility, evangelistic use of the Word of God. And then for us, when we come and we sin, and we defile the Word of God, and we don't believe it, and we fall short of it, and we're humiliated by that knowledge of ourselves. This is Charles Spurgeon talking about this reality of us being sinners and God saving us. He says, well, first of all, God remained faithful in His choice of us. He chose His people and He did not choose them in the dark. He knew right well what their nature was and also the practice which would grow out of their nature so that nothing that has ever happened has ever surprised the Lord concerning any one of His people. He did not choose us unknowingly in the dark. He didn't just go, "Uh, oh, there's Joe, okay. Eyes wide open, room lit up, this guy with these problems, these sins, these inclinations, these things, he's mine. He chose us with his eyes open. He keeps us with his eyes open. He is completely aware of every sin you have ever done or will do. And he chose you willingly because he loved you. Not because you were good. He knew you weren't. He knew you were going to do bad things after that. It is one of the wonders of his grace. And it proves the greatness of his love. He chose us willingly. He chose us happily because he loved us. This is our ground in the gospel. Amen? Let's pray this morning and then we will sing number 702 to end.